Welcome to Artists of New England. This is a podcast created to inspire you on your journey of artistic expression. Whether you are a career artist, a teacher, an emerging artist, or hobbyist, you can learn and gain support from your peers. We will explore the symbiotic relationship between these groups, lending insight and empathy towards each other. We will discover the where, when, why, and how of the creative process of artists living and working in New England, with occasional bonus interviews with gallery owners, collectors of fine art, and art historians. Perhaps today's show will bring you the aha moment you've been waiting for. Welcome to Artists of New England with your host, Laura Kessner-King. Today I'm here in Newcastle with Grant Drumheller, the Professor of Art and Art History at UNH. Recently, Recently retired. retired. Right. Yes, you were there a long time. 32 years. Wow. That's a... 38 years in total. You really don't teaching. look old enough to... You must have started right out of school. I was young. I was. I realized when I look... I have students that are in their 50s, and I <laughs> that's really close, you know? <laughs> they don't think so, but yeah. I, I yeah. do. Of course, yes. <laughs> we could die the same day. <laughs> I love it. At Well, thank you for... Uh, being on the show. No this problem. It's fun. Great. It's fun being paid attention to. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It is great. So um, in doing a bit of research, which I found a lot of stuff out there, and you have a great website, I did notice you were born in Ohio, so we have a commonality there. I wasn't born there. Oh, well, I actually was raised in Ohio. I was born in Davis, California. Oh, I got it wrong. Okay, so Ohio, Cleveland. Uh, well, I graduated from high school outside of Cleveland, okay. but I really was raised in Toledo, Ohio, okay. yeah. which uh, my brother still lives in Toledo. Yeah, I have two sons in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. Well, and four grandchildren, so I go out there quite a bit. Cincinnati's, like Toledo is a real city. I mean, there's really beautiful homes, <laughs> yeah. there's a real cultural yeah. environment. Yeah. And I remember going to school in New York City. I went, I met my roommate and he said, Ohio, do they have TV in Ohio? <laughs> That's about it. I mean, that was yeah. how parochial yeah. my New Yorker friends were. Sure. And there's a, I always tell my students, are used to, that um, you know, don't stay in New England if you don't have to, if you need to go some, you know, go out to the, our big country where there's right. huge cities and there's cultural environments that are equal to or, or surpass yeah. Boston. You know, yeah. these are little little backwaters really in the grand scheme of things yeah lovely places yeah beautiful so tell me um tell our listeners your earliest artistic explorations what was the earliest things you remember doing i remember being five in kindergarten and doing a drawing of an indian and looking at the kids next to me doing little figures on the bottom edge of the paper and I filled the page ah. this big 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 Indian yeah. you know political correctness aside that's what it's it was American. American Native American with a headdress and filled with color all the colors in the crayon thickly crayoned in no half hearted crayoning was mine <laughs> And completely covered the page, yeah. and I subsequently got some kind of prize from the city because Toledo would have wow. you know public students would get these things, and it was, and right then my mother's antenna went up, yeah. and my dad was kind of on board, 
and I was encouraged, you know, as you are as a child when you get some kind of, you stand away. And um, then I went, uh, then, so that was the earliest thing. I mean, I I, I guess there's earlier ones I don't recall, but I was was artistic then. I was like, I I had a graphic idea. Hmm. It was premature, prematurely, I guess that's probably what talent expresses itself young Mm -hmm. is not necessarily that it's incredible but it's just early you know people good at the piano or instruments they're good young there's something that's touched them and it's almost internal so it's it's something that you're born with just a sensitivity that's all i would say that's wonderful a lot of people have it they just don't do anything yeah it goes undeveloped so it's amazing so tell us uh, a little bit about your junior high high school years what did you do through those Times. Junior high. Um, well, I um, well, I went. I studied at the museum at in Toledo, which was uh, downtown. We lived out by the university, and I had to, my mother was not the mo- I was the fourth of four boys, so she wasn't the one that was going to wake me up, take me to the museum, wait for me. Come, yeah. you know, the idea that all this would be done was not. Sure. It, it wasn't even in the cards. <laughs> There's a bus at the end of the road. You Weren't you quite young, though? How old? I was uh, fifth grade, fourth grade, okay. nine, ten. Yeah. I get on a bus. Yeah. Goodbye. Maybe we'll see you. My mother was like, yeah, so long. Here's a nickel. <laughs> Buy yourself okay. a, a chocolate bar. Oh, no. You were really thrown into things, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. And I had three older brothers, so um, there was a lot going on in that house. It wasn't, no, it wasn't like there was time. And if you had a mother who wasn't like absolutely uh, dedicated to being a soccer mom, there yeah. was versions of that, but it wasn't like in, in the sixties, it wasn't like that. So I would get on the bus and I have, I have a friend, Margaret McCann who's a painter and she's from one of nine or 10 or 11 from Cleveland Heights. And again, it was like a house with hooks on the wall. You <laughs> yeah. put your stuff on your books and you were on your own. She became a violinist and a yeah. painter. But, you know, I think that that gave me self-motivation. It was like every Saturday I would do this during school. I had to be recommended. And then I took the classes. And uh, every Saturday I would walk upstairs in the museum. So I did that for four years Mm -hmm. until I was in high school. So I kind of had this great experience of the museum. The classes were kind of, you know, draw, you'd make pottery you do something or other one week and you use the art in the museums they take the classes up and you mm. look at medieval sculptures and you draw them but um it was really being in the museum and wandering around and looking at great art and the thing about the midwest which maybe doesn't isn't acknowledged or known widely in the east is that those cities cincinnati chicago cleveland oh toledo were all the centers of small fortunes mm-hmm. and manufacturing fortunes that built this country. So there's a homes filled with homes with art and beautiful mm-hmm. antiques and beautiful craftsmanship because European craftsmen mm-hmm. came and built those communities. Unlike, I don't think there's anything around here, yeah. anything around Boston, maybe Newton has a few places like that in Wellesley, but nothing. The road, you know, roads and roads of estates that these represented small engines and manufacturing. And the, yeah. for Toledo, it was the car industry, glass industry. So they were buying, there was a few families and they bought great art and they mm-hmm. put it in, they built museums. They had a civic sense of what they did with their money. Right. Again, something 
maybe we have, I don't know, do we have that with a super wealthy nowadays? I guess a little. I think Menlo Park is, yeah, there's a, hopefully, but not to that degree. There wasn't this hole that said, oh yeah, we need a museum here. Yeah. We don't have a museum in Portsmouth. Yeah. We've got plenty of money, you know, there's a lot of money. But, um, you know, it's just, it was just that. So I was so much a recipient of that wonderful thing. Yeah. It was a great place to grow up. Yeah. Well, I don't it's necessarily want to live there now. Uh, yeah. And about, I mean, I always say if the waters come, I'm going back to Toledo <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can fly to Rome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's okay. I don't need to, you know, but I love that I'm, I'm being silly and facetious, but I actually, um, so that's what I did as a young young person. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is my most important thing. I'll just me quickly mention, I was junior in high school. My dad got a job in Cleveland, so we moved to the big city, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And I had to find a new class, and I went into the, the office and I said, well, they said, well, you want to take shop or art? And I paused, and then I took shop already. I'm going to take art. So I found a wonderful teacher in high school, and it was at a very important time when I was in high school, I had a bunch of friends, and then I moved in the middle of it, and I was yeah. a weirdo, and then I was not i was not a sports person. I was chubby, and I was an artist, and I was sort of fey, and it was like, oh, geez, what am I going to do? And so I threw myself into this yeah. really awful suburban, very, very conventional place, because that was my parents bought a house, and I had to make do, and I did it through the art room. Mm -hmm. I had this wonderful teacher she was a good artist herself, had been educated at um, Carnegie Mellon and uh, came from a very kind of sophisticated background. And she got me completely and mm -hmm. she taught me and she would say something. So here's the other thing about being an artist. I think that you have to be a good student. You have to hear something and take it in and then keep it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's why I'm. That's why I feel like I've developed as an artist. I, I was like a sponge, yeah. and I could hold it. My wife is a great um, linguist. She remembers everything, absolutely everything someone says to her. And then she can turn around, and that's what makes a good doctor. They can remember every bit of yeah. anatomical or any kind of studies, and the, the, they're keeping up with things because they can draw on that yeah. memory. So where's your memory going to be best? Right. It's not really what you're good at. It's where your memory is most dedicated mm -hmm. so so what what point did you know you were going to become an artist my father uh, I was went to school in the east I I went to I finished Rocky River Ohio I came to the NYU I wanted to go to the big city I felt that I I wanted to my it was a deal I had with my parents they said well you can go anywhere you can get in so I at that time I applied to a number of colleges and I got into NYU. I went to the village and lived there for a year. I realized it was the wrong move pretty quickly. And then I moved to Boston University School of Fine Arts because they had a dedicated conservatory. Mm. And they uh, it was called School of Fine Arts at that time. And now it's College of Fine Arts. But it had a music, great music school, it had a great art school, it had a great drama school. And they, you know, made artists in those places because because uh, uh so i just my transfer to bu occurred 
I did, drew the, did the portfolio, I got in. I didn't know it because my folks were living then out of the country and the letter came to my parents in Mexico. And I remember saying, calling my dad and I finally got word that I got in because I called them and he said, I, I said, I, I got to be you and I think I'm going. And he said, you are going, I sent them a deposit. <laughs> And of course, a hundred dollars meant a lot more than it was like. Up, oh, I guess I'm going. I guess I'm going to art school. And then I was boom. You're like, and I stepped off the train from New York in Boston, and I thought, oh, thank God, because New York was a asphalt jungle in 1971. You got. I didn't. I didn't get it. I didn't get assaulted there, but I mean, everybody I knew was mugged in the village. It was not the place it is now you could buy an apartment for nothing you could rent one for even less i mean it was a crumbling environment and filled with all sorts of crime and it was a scary environment yeah you really made decisions about where to go and when to go everywhere in manhattan brooklyn everywhere now it's wall-to-wall tight jeans you know Mm -hmm. there's no, no nothing like it was yeah so I uh, was so happy to come to New York. I got off in the Back Bay Station, which I don't know if it exists anymore, but you walked out, there was sky. I looked up, there was blue sky <laughs> and these cute little four-story buildings everywhere. Yeah. There was no skyscrapers. The one skyscraper in Boston was the Prudential Center. Yeah. So it was, and then downtown, there was a few, like the Custom Tower. But it was a sea change of environment, and it was just right. It was the right scale for me. Perfect. And then I had wonderful wonderful teachers. Yeah, tell us about them and who, who really mentored you the most, do you think? Um, well, they were honest to me. They, uh, I had a lot of drawing as a student, so I was drawing from life nine hours a week. Mm-hmm. I did that for four years. Wow. I did a six-hour drawing class. We met twice, and yeah. then you had to go to a practice session on Friday. There was none of this party banging on Thursday night yeah. and late hangovers Friday. It was yeah. get up and go, and you were you were expected to go. Yeah. And they and of course, when you're 18, 19, 20, you don't think, well, if I don't do this, I won't have a career. You just think, can I do it? That's, mm-hmm. You're thinking locally, not globally. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a choice, and I knew my parents were spending serious money. I knew I had a responsibility. This was my job, and mm-hmm. to do well, and I was into it. I really, really got into learning. I wasn't good. It took a long time to learn what they were teaching, and um, I spent a whole semester, for example, drawing with just line, drawing the figure. No no shading. No, 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 that. No, no, no. Take that. No. Don't. Don't put Take that away. Really? No shading. <laughs> you have to draw the planes. You had to understand volume and how it moved through space. It was like, this is first, that's second, that's third. I'm grabbing my arm as it's moving through space. And you had to explain that just by virtue of overlapping volumes going mm-hmm. back, just by the virtue of how the lines hit and where the relationships were. Like your wrist is here. Where is that to that? Where is that to that? You know, it's this constant mm-hmm. comparison. So. Really, it was four years of looking and wow. seeing and teaching you to look, teaching mm-hmm. you to see, which is a great education. So mm-hmm. it was all, I mean, it was different styles, but it wasn't like now where I was, you know, I think that my experience as a teacher wasn't so unified. 
maybe we were all speaking about the same things, but I think people would go, would be gravitating to teachers because of personality rather than content. Right. Well, there the content was essentially all European, okay. uh, modernist, uh, looking, seeing, and then everybody had different personalities, mm -hmm. but the personalities were secondary to the content. Mm -hmm. It's like music, it was really like music. I kept thinking, oh, if you don't play it right, you can't, no way to disguise that. Mm -hmm. You can't dress it up. Mm -hmm. This was like, you gotta do this right. Yeah. So um, semester, drawing, uh, drawing one was one whole year. There wasn't this idea that was, you know, you didn't get advanced drawing by the second year. I didn't get to advanced drawing until I was a senior in college. So there's a lot of time. So drawing, oh, and then in addition, there was the nine hours and there was the three hours of perspective drawing where you did aerial perspective, you did over, you know, projected perspectives mm -hmm. and you had to learn how to plot an object on a grid and then, you know, by doing an overview and a side view. And I mean, it was very technical, yeah. but at the same time it taught, again, taught a lot. And then there was anatomy, which was another drawing course. So drawing, 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 yeah. and draw some more. Wow. So um, I don't think you can get that. You can't walk into that and not, uh, yeah, not be changed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, and I was praised. I was not, a, I was good at the, I was a good student. I was, yeah. uh, I was acknowledged. So that was nice. I didn't have to like, you know, but I was also a different 19, 20 year old kid. And I, you know, I kind of kept to myself. I had friends, but I was. I mean, I made this, I made that commitment and then I really wanted to do it. I didn't want to, you know, I wasn't thinking, well, where's, where am I in this? Mm -hmm. That was not the question I was asking myself. I was asking, how can I learn to do this? Mm -hmm. Can I do it better? And I would see the students who were more advanced and who were really, really had mastered something and I would want to be them. I didn't like look at Titian and say, I want to be Titian. I wasn't that, you know, smart. I was just trying to get from point A to point B. Sure. But so I had a wonderful teacher from the Brer Academy. Um, and his name was Izo Papo. He's still alive. He's a painter. He taught for many years at Pine Manor College, which is this college down in Chestnut Hill. But he also taught at BU. And he had a beautiful accent from Yugoslavia. He went, studied in Milan. And his whole family had been killed in the Holocaust, and he came and to Boston. He had a lovely wife, Rachel, who was um, involved with us when we had a child. She was working in healthcare, and she's since died. But at any rate, he he pulled me aside one time, and he said, Durham Heller, I, I think you do such beautiful drawings <laughs> at home, but you don't do them in the studio during class. So he would make these comments to me, and I think hmm, you're right. You know, I can work on my own. Yeah. Fine. I sort of thought that was a good thing because I could do the homework, but I wasn't. I couldn't. I was like dyslexic. I couldn't like not be distracted, and I eventually got through that. But it was a process of learning and yeah. process of dealing with my maturity, which was of course very low at that point. I was not. Yeah. I talked constantly. So were they teaching painting as well along with the drawing or did that um, later? It was a classic art school in that you, you were taught design principles, <clears throat> which are pretty codified. Um, 
according to, you know, uh, modernist ideas. And then you were uh, taught painting later on. You were taught color. So we had a class in design, color design, they called it. And again, it was pencil drawings of design ideas. Yeah. Say, do a draw, make a drawing that's spatial with one line. And there would be, you'd just do it one week, it was wrong. You'd do it another week, it was wrong. Then you'd finally figure out, oh, I have to make that line direct you in some way. It's not, you know, like there was, so it was, a, it was very interesting. And it quickly, you know, got past that. That was sort of boring. But then you had to do it neatly. You had to make borders. You had to present it like it was an actual work. Mm -hmm. And you really got to think about things pared down and how, you know, there was a contemporary aspect of, of uh, abstract painting that most of it deals with simplification. Mm -hmm. So it was that kind of idea. Mm. Yeah, it was. When did you get, personally get into the painting? Two years. Oh, personally, I was, um, so in my second year of school, mm -hmm. I started painting and I only was able to paint with two colors, but this is it. Ah. I knew that I found out very quickly that when you stain a painting or glaze a painting with the one color and then you paint with white, you, the stainy part, the glazy part, with the pure color wiped over a white ground is very warm it can uh, it's, or it's a different color than when you add white to that color so for example if you use burnt umber it's very warm it's like a dark dark yellow yeah. you think of rembrandts they have that golden quality i don't know if it's burnt umber but it's something like that mm -hmm. and then you add white to that burnt umber it cools it off the white plus that burnt umber as a uh, a tint, I guess is what they call it, becomes a cooler bluish brown, gray. Mm. So I could make warm, cool divisions, even just by manipulating the paint. And I was, I, I couldn't explain that, but I was like, oh, look at that. Yeah. I can make something look orange. Because I remember the still life was uh, shot with uh, a spotlight and it made everything very hot and the lights, you know, it was from the incandescent light and then the shadows were very cool and I could sort of make that happen with just, it was only one color. And I was, I looked around the room and everybody was painting the same brown, white painting. And I was trying to make this luminous, I was having, so I was like, oh, I love this. This is cool. I wasn't being a show off, but I was sort of like, and then everybody sort of walking in and seeing this painting. and. And I think it was sort of big. I made it big and it was square and I, it sort of felt, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about the composing and how it looked, the all over impact of the piece. All those are things that you're, you know, do you have to pump some that into somebody? I don't know. I, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's asking someone to, I guess, to take responsibility for the way things are and look, but I, um, so that was my first painting. My painting experience as a personal thing was was later on, and I was painting with my. I'm gonna keep referring to school like there's other things in my life, but I mean, <laughs> these are young experience, yeah. and they have an impact. I I still see Reed K, my old teacher from my junior year. I was his assistant in grad school, and he's a good friend. He came to my wedding. Karina, he knows my children. I mean, mm -hmm. it's been an ongoing relationship. Mm -hmm. But I remember being in his class, and I think uh, 
he said something to me and I was rude to him and he ignored me, but it was at the beginning of the last final painting from life in that class. I totally, it blew over my head that he was mad at me. And I proceeded to paint this painting of this model sitting like you were naked with her hand like this in her arm, uh, hand in her, in her fist and looking at a mirror, there was a mirror there and I was behind it because I was alone. I could get away and kind of be isolated. And uh, I remember painting her face and painting her hair and painting the, that whole passage of her face and just doing, doing this painting. And I lost track of time. Mm -hmm. I just painted, looked, mixed color, painted, looked, I did this kind of trio of things. It was very, very interesting. And I didn't think about it. I just rode this moment. Right. I've come to find out that that's something that happens. And it's a kind of spiritual moment of mm-hmm. forgetting time lapses. Mm-hmm. The things happen and then boom, there it was. And it actually looked pretty good. So I just remember that's probably my first painting experience. Mm. He came over, made up. He said, Drumhill, you were rude to me. I'm so sorry. What do you think of this? <laughs> well, it's really nice. He showed the gallery director, John Arthur, said it was going to be worth money someday. I mean, he was really filled with all yeah. this praise. And I can tell you, I don't remember how or why I did it, but I remember painting the face mm-hmm. with kind of, and I still think it's a, kind of a nice painting. Nice, and it was well drawn, of course, because I was a good drawer. I was doing it nine hours a week. And um, I remember hair I did, and then I made the, just instinctually made her hair band with pieces of color knifed in. And then the background was very diluted in terms of its level of resolution. And it all kind of worked. And it was done, that was done. Mm. that moment declared itself. So as an artist, that set for me a bar Mm -hmm. that I then was interested in going forward and through all the different experiences. And then I had an incredible graduate experience, which I could talk about, but I talked Mm. about it, you know, exhaustively with Philip Gustin and Jim Weeks there at BU. And um, it was, that was another incredible experience. And largely because it was in pursuit of that feeling again and painting where I was setting up situations where I would get into that moment of forgetting and just doing. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about making products that would go on the walls of galleries on Newberry Street. I was thinking about having that painting experience, good or bad. So I've always done things that didn't help my career, like not do the same painting 25 times. And that's one of them. I was pursuing something, a feeling. I wasn't pursuing. I could have gone to law school if I wanted to make a lot of money. Yeah. You know, that was, maybe I could have, I don't know. I think I say that, I say that. That does not (laughs) say anything bad about lawyers, but I think, you know, Mm -hmm. three years, you do pretty well for the rest of your life if you can not self-destruct. So is that, you've chased that, that's what you've done? That's all I've chased. That's all I care about. Of course, I love my family and I paint, paint, but I paint, the subjects I just, dipping in and out of mm-hmm. and um no fanning i think she sees something we have a little dog here um she so i um i did that 
I'm, I'm actually, it's interesting because I'm reflecting back a lot of my work. Um, now I have a friend who was a filmmaker and now he's a painter. He's doing paintings now and he's a very good writer because he wrote for film and he wrote, wrote plays and he taught writing and taught screenplay. <laughs> so he's going to write about my paintings and I was a little concerned about it, but I thought he called me last night and he, it was really interesting. I've had a lot of great writers write about my work, but I'm looking forward to his perceptions of my work. So um, tell me a little bit of, um, I know you won a grant right out of um, college. Oh, yes. And you went to study in Florence. Right. I was in grad school and I was looking for a job and I thankfully didn't get one, but I did get a Fulbright grant. I had the audacity to apply for one in painting to Italy because I wanted to go. Yeah. And I like travel. I And uh, I just made that determination and I did apply. And I went through the process and I won. Mm most remarkably, and it was a great surprise that it took up the first year out of school, so I didn't have to worry about what I was going to do, and we lived in Florence, 1978 through 79. I'll be there two weeks. <clears throat> yeah, it's marvelous. <laughs> uh, it was a great thing, and it was off, you know, you get there in September, so it was off season. It wasn't, yeah. there is no season now, everybody's there all the time, but it was one time everybody was there in the summer. And there's always been droves of tourists in, in Florence, but now they're all the time. And it's it was a great experience mm -hmm. seeing that those works and being there and we my first year of my marriage, so it was fun to be there together and we were uh, both my wife was working on her master's degree in French as so she was reading French literature. It was like a century a month. So we just would work all day, wow. get on the bus in the evening. We weren't far from the center of town, but we would take a little bus and it was cheap. And we would go right into the town and have a coffee or get an ice cream and <clears throat> wander around. And uh, yeah, it was terrific. Terrific year. A great to, way to get to know a country mm. like Italy and have a working knowledge of the language, you know, functional knowledge, not really great, but. I was able to then use that when I was teaching. Uh, up till about five years ago, we had a program in Italy at UNH, and we started that in 2002 or three, and we had it for almost 10 years, going back in the summer times yeah. to a city in the Marche. So my uh, yeah, my ties to Italy are pretty deep, um, mm -hmm. as the, as if, if that can really be. I don't have a home there. I have friends who do, but it wasn't that. It wasn't that wasn't going to happen. But I would certainly like to be able to go there. It's kind of like you can choose a place to go to when you're flying somewhere. We always fly in Rome or Venice. It's always an easy place to to connect and go someplace. Mm -hmm. And that first coffee is always wonderful. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> oh yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazingly uh, sensual culture. You realize how different um, it is to live in a place where my major intention of the day is the meals and how that's going to unfold and the preparations for the, you know, the sensual activities of life mm -hmm. rather than work. Right. Right. Yeah. And different culture. 
you still get stuff done. They still seem to be incredibly productive. It's just <laughs> how it's done. Yeah, they're more relaxed. They get more done in less time. They're nicer to each other. Yeah. So um, then you became a professor here. You settled down in New Hampshire. I was teaching. I came back. I was teaching in Boston around the city at part-time jobs. I'd get a semester, a full-time semester at BU once in a while, but I was mostly teaching drawing and painting, or I would fill in. Mm -hmm. I filled in for the techniques class that Reed Kay taught, which his book is about, and um, did that one or two semesters. And I think my first semester of teaching, I taught that course. And of course, there was always, I quickly realized the binder he gave me, which was the schedule of classes and the semesterly, you know, following 15 weeks of lessons and projects, there was a lecture that had to occur, which wasn't in the notes. And there was the demonstration. So this was a technical course in painting that covered all these different kinds of painting, oil painting, water media, preparation of the canvas, wow. rabbits can glue this whole nine yards. And I, I had done it as a student. Yeah. Then I was a grad student. I assisted him for a year in that course. So I set everything out. I knew what to do in the, mm -hmm. the lab and I knew how to deal with everything. And I knew, knew everything. And of course it was in a very, very careful, clean place. And so everything was in great condition. You know, the brushes that the students used were all washed perfectly. They didn't look like they'd been used. All the painting knives were perfect. You know, like it was everything at its own house. There was mothballs in one room for the, everything had its own. It was like a very well-dressed lady. Yeah. <laughs> Your closets were perfect. Pristine. This was pristine. And I had to replicate that while he was on vacation. On, and the third round, I was teaching the course. And he handed me the outline and said, oh, great. You know, I thank you so much. I thought there would be more notes. I opened the first page and I realized there was three headings, A, B, and C. And then I actually had to fill in the blanks. And I remember starting to talk about it, and I was done in five minutes. This is a common mistake teachers make. Yeah. And I didn't realize. So the class was on Monday. I started Wednesday before writing the actual words yeah. I was going to speak. And I ended up reading out my what I had to say. I, I would have... If there was a slide talk in those days, you would give it with visual uh, help with a slide rather than the digital um, programs that they have. Mm -hmm. And I would put that in. I'd write the contents of the slide, what it was. You know, I would I, everything was enumerated and dotted, and because I, I could not remember, I had to do this. So it was a five-day preparation for a half-hour lecture. And then I would have to then get the stuff out and try it again because I made a disastrous uh, problem happen when I made the easiest thing, which is a five-pound cut of DeMar varnish. Well, DeMar varnish, I don't even know if they use it anymore. It's not necessarily, it's put it fallen into probably the bad practices category, but you used to make it by getting a sack full of DeMar crystals, actually, um, and a pound of crystals. You put them in this kind of uh, cheesecloth bag or muslin bag. Mm -hmm. You'd suspend it in five gallons of turpentine, mm -hmm. and then you'd have a five <laughs> So I did this, but I failed to have a big enough jar. And I remember pouring the 
the turpentine and thinking, this is going to overflow if I stick this. Somehow I did this, and it started, this girl, I remember her name was Bonnie Wexler, and she stood there and watched me. She was like this, because they would be half asleep at 3 in the afternoon <laughs> watching, and I just said, this is going to be a disaster. And it just she just stood there and watched this stuff dribble all over this. So I had this, uh, you know, so I had to, like, practice. Everything had to be practiced. And I realized, oh, you got to prep. There's preparation for teaching, even at college level. I couldn't just extemporaneously yeah. spew this information, even though I practiced it. three. This was the third round. So reading, writing, it was a great lesson. And I realized, boy, teaching a drawing class is easy. Set up something and just walk around and just the only sin of teaching is not being involved at that point if you just walk around stand 10 feet back and just mm -hmm. don't want to and in, in, into move into that circle between the student and a, their work yeah. so then you landed up here five here. years there and then oh, i got i was there i 1986 i came to new hampshire we had children I had a studio in the South End that was dangerous to go into. Okay. I remember I, my car was stolen, my 1971 Chevrolet Impala, which was, you could see the ground when you were driving in it. And I had the baby carriage, which we struggled to get. It was $60, <laughs> I remember. Yeah. And someone stole the car. It was in the South, it was not, it was really in Roxbury. And there was just a lot of crime, you know. And I, I remember having to call the police just to get out of my building because the local kids were smoking pot and drinking and they were not particularly friendly to people that didn't live there and so i just we had two children one was an infant one was 15 18 months we lived in a great apartment in brookline but here's the thing about my experience in boston you struggle along you struggle along and you're there's about 10 artists there that can make a living because they can teach and then they have support of a gallery and then there you know, there's just no way. And it, it's a common problem if people think they can stay in the cities they were educated in. It's, that's why I say, go go forward, yeah. young woman, young man. Find someplace else to live. Because it's just not going to necessarily happen, and nor should it. You go to Cincinnati, and I see this all the time because I follow websites and auction houses that sell art of Cincinnati artists. Cincinnati had a very active, supporting collecting base of collectors and they the museum supported the local artists there was a real uh culture around the locals mm -hmm. this is common in europe and switzerland is a perfect example mm -hmm. burn uh had a great art uh community zurich all those big cities in or big um, switzerland they had their own cultural uh cultures of artists that were respected and they were shown in the museums and then, then they became international artists. So it's that was one of the things that... Um, you didn't see that happening. But not beyond a certain point. There was a couple of shows and if you didn't get the attention of the curators who were in charge then, then you didn't. So that was what happened. So I, I just thought, you know, it's time to move on. And I could stay in the East. My wife did not want to go farther than... Like we weren't going to go to Texas, and I uh, so I focused on finding a job in this area, hopefully, because I knew I was an East Coast person. But uh, so the New Hampshire job came up, and it was a godsend, and it was only a semester, and I just managed to hang on. 
then there was another semester and then I uh, there was a tenure track job that came up I was able to get that through thick and thin and I just hung on like the little pussycat you know with my claws <laughs> just hanging on and I kept working I just kept doing my painting yeah I was also at the same time I had shows in New York and I was getting some attention so it helped they were okay. that was I was a good bet yeah I think. And what were you painting at I was painting these large figure paintings, and they were mythical figures. I was doing paintings of, and they were almost like the history of painting. I was doing paintings of the um, mysterious draft of the fishes based on the Raphael cartoon that's a uh, tapestry. I just love these big subjects Mm. and, you know, figures and the the power of the the human form. I made them up. I look at them now and I think, how could you have done that? But I mean, it's a different person. I look at them now. I'm sort of revisiting some aspects of that work now, working with the figure more directly. And I, they're better. They're just better paintings, I feel. Mm. But at that time it was sort of postmodern, I guess it was something in the air and there was a classicism about the work that Mm. hit a note and I was getting in museums and stuff. So it was nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it helped, I think, bolster my teaching credential, and it made people more interested in employing me. Yeah. So, and how did you get into museums? Did you contact I them? Was, did they contact you? How did the museums that I was showing in was strictly as a result of a show I had in New York. Okay. And the the museum curators looking for a thematic show didn't reach out for art from the public, they would go to let the gallerists make the first cut. That is what they, what, I was shocking to find this out, but this is what happened. So I luckily had had a gallery representation, Bess Cutler and there's a gallery in Boston that moved to New York. And she um, would, they regularly come in, curators would visit New York for shows and it was, the Aldrich Museum in Connecticut, in Richfield, Connecticut, which is a kind of cool uh, contemporary art museum, did a show of classicism and um, contemporary art, and I was in that. And then I was in another show at the Decor of the Museum, again on the same subject. And um, that's how it happened. It was through the New York collect- connection. and. I, I'm sad about that in a way because I feel like there's a lot of artists out there who are doing interesting work and the curators, of course, maybe they don't have the time or they complain that this isn't, they could never do this, but I always thought that they would be digging around all the time. Yeah. They'd be just turning over rocks, looking right. for things. That would right. be what one of their jobs, but it's apparently not. Interesting. All right, tell us a little bit about... What you're painting now, these days, what have you been doing? I've been largely doing landscape paintings from above, looking down or in a kind of heightened space. Yeah. So I do that as kind of a, um, that just continue to interest me. The subjects range, oftentimes reflect um, the public spaces. So I'm doing squares in Europe. I started doing this in 19, uh, 2008, nine. We went to the American Academy in Rome 
for a, slow, a short residency, like a month, five weeks. And it's way up on a hill. And uh, it was great. But I said, Karina, I want to be down, you know, in the gritty city. And so we went down into the center of Rome and stayed at a hotel. At that time, it was January, so it was pretty cheap. And it was four stories up, looking down on the Piazza Rotunda, which is the piazza where the Pantheon is. So uh, your first trip is coming up. I hope you get to go to Rome. Rome is really one of the smart, remarkable walking cities that you can just follow your nose around or a little map, and you'll yeah. <clears throat> encounter these marvelous places. And to this day, the Pantheon is still used as a church, but it's one of the oldest buildings in existence. It's continuously been used through history. So it's a church, but it was something else. And it has, I think that's where. So um, just set up and paint, look down and paint. I didn't do that. I set up my camera. I had a video camera oh, okay. and I was taking photos and I would draw a little bit, but it was really largely from that photo record that I did the work. Oh, and I, um, I don't necessarily work from life because it's not convenient to do that. It's really difficult to get to a place. And there's the resonances that one might appreciate from working from life in those places aren't things that I can't achieve by working in my studio. So, you know, what we, I guess what I'm saying is that when you're working in a landscape, you're kind of experiencing this thing in a dynamic of light and air and space and value and color and but trying to adjust and change and move things around just isn't going to work if i'm working in this large arch architectural idea of a big declining space coming from the top of the painting down little figures here and there i want more discretion and more time to, to figure it out and it really doesn't form quickly it's so um, do you create the the composition yourself or yes you, so they're just references you're they're references and i change them i tip them i'm doing all sorts of things oh. i don't know whether i'm gonna how i'm gonna treat it i don't know if the lady on the bicycle is gonna go or she's gonna stay or she's gonna move across the square um does it look oh. better to make it orange or bright orange or green i mean i'm always shifting things and it's really thought of as more of a that kind of yeah. Uh, thing that I, it's kept very non-objective for a long time mm -hmm. so until it feels right right so that's been fun because it encompasses a lot of aspects of my interests but i also think it's kind of interesting i i see that there's a lot of people doing something similar or they have done it, something similar there's photographers who do it as yeah. well but i think i'm a particular animal and it, they stand out enough so i'm doing that I'm also working from a series of fishermen. Uh, suddenly that became interesting to me. I was up in Deer Isle. I go up to Maine and I uh, met a, a clammer, professional clammer. You know, you go to these vacation places in Maine and you just see them and you think, oh, that's interesting. But I actually got to encounter and meet somebody. Uh, so I got to know Herbie, who's a famous clammer, and I started working from him and going out in the flats and I dug some clams and I started thinking, oh, this is really close. This, I live in an area where they 
are fishing, where this is an active part of the New England life. Um, I live on an island, so I thought, this is appropriate. I can do this. Nice. And it's, I, I mean, because I love drawing the figure in action, doing things, it was, it's been fun. So I've been doing a lot of diggers, and it, it's kind of great because in the landscape, I like a figure. I don't, I'm sort of over looking at things, fields with trees in the sky. Right. I want something to be happening. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, just gives it a kind of human note. And I, so that that's one other aspect of the work. So I've been, so I have a, a lot of paintings going on that are fishermen, fisherwomen, tossing fish in the air. I mean, the act, actions of, uh, you know, cleaning the nets, sewing them, yeah. and just having uh, that is one part. Here's the dog again. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then other portraits I do of my family, okay. yeah. family paintings. Mm -hmm. I had a little retrospective of paintings in 2004 of just my work that I did since having a family. So wow. I've, I've, always done a lot of different kind of work. And do you typically do like a series and then switch to something else or is this just all anything that's... I work in one vein and then I'll switch or I'll be doing something simultaneously somewhere else. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting and I always worry it doesn't look like the same person but I don't... I, I just figured I'll just do a lot of them. I'll just do a lot of everything so that there's a culture around the work mm -hmm. that supports it mm -hmm. so oh yeah that's grand he does that i mean because there's this mania in the art world where people do the same thing for five or ten years mm -hmm. and then they do something else mm -hmm. and they dig down and they sort of mine a territory in it to me it's the recipe for boredom and it's also a trap and what is better i mean of course you want to be disciplined and do learn yeah. and find out about something or subject or an idea that you're interested in but at a certain point it becomes shackles right and the ultimately freedom is the most important mm. aspect of being an artist mm. nice so can you share a little of your process how do you start a painting and any special tips on technique that you could maybe do over work a microphone and, <laughs> <clears throat> let's see so i often work um, tonally, so I work out of a middle tone ground. I don't necessarily like working on a white canvas with oil paint. I, I often find that I like the uh, sense that there's something happening already there. It's mm -hmm. akin to toning a charcoal page. Mm -hmm. Some artists I know like think that's terrible, that you should only work on a white canvas, but sure. there's different ways of doing everything. Sure. I, uh, I've got... In, on the opposite side of things, I, when I work in uh, acrylic and mixed media, I do work on white canvases. I do start right up with a kind of color note. Again, it can often be very broad and just two colors on the canvas, but I start up with something. Mm. So I have a beginning, a kind of overture. But breaking the ice is like the first like, rule. You just have to throw yourself in, mm. do whatever you have to throw do. Throw yourself in. I like that. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, the, lands, the the paintings from above uh, lend themselves to a kind of approach that's more non-objective. So I'll start, I'll start with different ideas about color and how to do that mm. and play around with things. But then it gives way to whatever I'm, my, the painting becomes what it wants to be. Right. So change throughout. 
Um, what's your greatest challenge been through the years with your art career and all? Supporting myself. Mm. So, uh, um, and you know, I think knowing other people and their deficits, you often don't know what your greatest challenge is because you're the victim of them. <laughs> I'm not oh quite sure what my uh, challenges have been because no one's bothered to tell me necessarily. But I think uh, I think it's very difficult to uh, feel satisfied with yourself to the point that you don't feel like you're um, a failure. So keeping a good head on and being healthy. My mother said something to me long ago, you have to have strong legs so you can paint. And it was one of these <laughs> wonderful moments. My mother was actually rational and clear. And I was like, God, that was really good, mom, that you thought that way. Like, yeah. you know, that you have to be practical. Yeah. So being, a, I think the challenge is to get it, perhaps is to find a way to support yourself, do it, and then isolate your work and get it done. Get in and do it. Because if you're not doing it regularly and on a kind of schedule, it's very hard to achieve anything. Mm -hmm. I notice that even in the few months that I'm not teaching and that I've been teaching lightly in the last semester and then I'm fully retired now. But it's taken a whole year to kind of clear the decks and to be able to go in and start in and be in it and not be distracted or worried about something else. And I would worry. I mean, I have to swim laps about some of the conflicts I would have in my teaching life, often with other uh, people in my age. You know, it was not always smooth sailing because they're converging personalities that don't necessarily mesh. Sure. Adults don't get along with each other as well as kids do. So I... Uh, I come from a big family. I was the youngest, you know, that, that helped, but my biggest challenge, hmm, I think it's really in the work, I have to say, how, how it progresses and how you make it fresh and keep it alive. Mm. And how do you know when it's done? I think it kind of declares itself. Hmm. If you're not happy with something, uh, Mike Major, who was a painter in Boston for a number of years, came up and spoke. And I said, so how do you know when something's done? And he said, I said, and I'm not trying to be coy because he, he knew I was a painter and I'd been painting for years. And I, But I was an honest. I said, look, I'm really curious when you don't tickle a painting to death and when you just let it be. And he said, you know, I just don't do that last thing. Hmm. That one last thing I want to do, that last thing you should, don't do it just don't interesting and I thought that was an interesting yeah. it was at least something to think about sure. like yeah. there's always something to do but it's always... like you, can't, you do you really want to right. and here's the thing if you and if you get into a painting and you want to go back to work on it you really have to devote yourself to reconsidering the entire painting mm. you can't just like do like the little highlights on the, the, mm. the bell jar no <laughs> the bell jar might be start moving and shifting <laughs> right. and you have to reconsider everything. And another artist, I remember saying, saying something to me, Graham Nixon, who was the dean at the New York Studio School, he was speaking and he said, 
well, you know, you close the attic window and the basement window flies open. So it's a little bit like that. You know, as soon as you think you've completed that one thing, then something else changes and the emphasis will shift. And it's a very interesting thing. And so you really have to be responsible for that whole thing. Thing. And part of that respect is realizing that it happens in a kind of zeitgeist, a moment of, in, of inspiration and desire to make it. And unless you can devote yourself to getting that again, mm-hmm. don't. Lead it, let, let it be, and maybe the moment will allow you some other time when you've reached enough distance that you're not riding it because you want yeah. it to be something. It's not so much about this desire to get something as much as being there and being a kind of receiver of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a painting I was working on this morning and I had to do major architectural shifts and changes mm-hmm. and that welcomed the opportunity to make other changes that then then now the painting feels complete. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's any good, but I'm, I feel like that, that's <laughs> happened. It's resolved. Yeah. Um, so what makes your teaching unique, do you think? Well, I say this all the time, but I was well-trained, like Mm -hmm. I said, and I was well-trained. I'm probably one of the few people who's still alive and trained like this. But I think if you know, if you were taught how to do something, you can usually teach how to do it. You can, you have something to convey. And that's what I have. I have the ability to convey certain things. Mm -hmm. So um, the nuts and bolts of art and making art very concrete a lot of the times so i feel that my my ability was in that concrete Mm -hmm. discussions and pushing students to get off their usual you know way of doing things and they 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 always carry along their high school art with them and they feel (laughs) like that was for their high point and uh you know, of course, they you know, there or they think that that <laughs> magazine illustration that they copied was the best thing I'll ever do. So there's a lot of resistance to painting from life and to keep going. And the and nowadays, uh, because uh, the personality of people through computers has changed so radically. I mean, it's yeah. changed and there's no way you can even say that to somebody who's under 50. Well, they don't understand it because... Um, there, it is totally different. The kind of synapse that goes on in the head is different. So yeah. I, getting somebody to entertain this making of something over a long period, that there's down times with it, and then there's a period where you can stay with it. It looks like it's curtains, and then you just keep working through it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember saying to my watercolor students, if it looks bad now, just keep going. Because the more you paint it, it gets better if you keep it light. And if all you, if you give up on everything, just fill the bathtub and put the water and <laughs> rinse the painting away. But this idea of that there's this way to do things from point A to point B to point C, it's not the way I was taught. It's not the way I believe it. I mean, I think that there's techniques you can learn. You can go to one atelier program after another and learn how to set up a palette and mm-hmm. to manufacture a painting given a certain set of criteria. But is that alive? I don't know. It's not my experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't particularly care about things looking, you know, highly real. And I, I while well, I've done commissioned portraits, that's not my job. You know, that's not what I do. Yeah. And But 
it's a good if you're good at that that's good <laughs> yeah. it's good the portrait artists i know like ron share who makes a hundred grand a portrait have a hell of a time selling their other work because they and they do very handsome paintings of street scenes or something and wow. they just can't so there's a frustration you give up sure. something to get something yeah, sure i mean that's commercial art that's what yeah. i'm saying so what's defined success for you uh, I think success is respect of your peers mm -hmm. and the appreciation of your work through that. That's a very good feeling when that happens, mm -hmm. when your uh, work is meaningful to people, yeah. not just through your uh, peers, but also that it's valid enough for someone to want to obtain a painting, to want to live with it. That's success. Um, yeah, I, th I think that I feel gr very successful, not because my work sells or for, for any career reason, but I feel successful that I've gotten this far and I can continue doing something. Mm -hmm. I look around me and I see a lot of people with a lot more money than me who have these careers, and when they hang up their spurs, they have nothing else to do other yeah. than play golf or <laughs> putter in the garden or bother their wives at the grocery store. I just don't know what is going to happen to these friends of mine. Yeah. And they have not, they don't, are unfortunate enough to have this thing that they can, that picks them up and carries them right. like I have with my work. Yeah. So I have my, my meaningful work is my painting and it continues. So I, that to me is a success in its own. Hmm. So give a little bit of advice to, um, young artists starting out and then we'll switch to us old folks <laughs> oh so again i talk a lot about supporting yourself as an artist and of course the traditional means of support was teaching but there's allied things that you can do also in the computer world and there's healthcare. my wife and i worked in hospitals there was a thing called a unit secretary. I don't know if they exist anymore, but there are unit secretaries. I learned a lot about kind of a uh, layman's version of medicine by just working in hospitals for 10 years on weekends to support my habit because I wasn't getting money from my parents right. in art school. They were paying for the college. I had to live. Mm -hmm. So I paid rent and I did all that by working in the hospitals in Boston. And I could work, we could both work three shifts weekends and holidays and make enough money to pay rent wow. which i think you probably could still do something like that but then i have a friend who's a nurse who's a painter i have a friend who's a psychologist who's a painter then mm -hmm. they manage to finally get down to more part-time time so that they can devote the rest of their time to their work mm. so i and i think i'd be a pretty good cook i'd i mm -hmm. could work in the restaurant industry there's just i think there's ways of doing it i had a student whose father was a plumber and i said when I said she was going to be a, a school teacher, and I said, why don't you become a plumber? So I think that there's just uh, so many interesting things that you yeah. can spend your time on that are not the traditional thing. And you can have a real life, and you can also have a painting life. Mm. And you can do it. That can happen. You have to sort of work on it, and you have to insist on it. It's not going to be handed to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the career aspect of it is one thing. 
And then I always think that the early experiences I had with cooperative galleries, and I continue to have one in New York, has, has been really important too. Mm. So that communities in supporting other artists and going to openings and you know tapping people on the shoulder and saying, I'm so-and-so and I really like your work. Mm. And um, generally people will return the favor and being a presence in social media helps. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I mean, I sell every painting I seem to put up on social media. Oh, okay, so tell me about that. That's a, so, um, that's a so I just, but I don't do it religiously. I have a terrible presence. I put up my baby too. I mean, my <laughs> granddaughter. I and I take pictures of steak. You know, so I'm in, I'm not a good. You're all over the place. But I'm all over the place. But there, are, I know a lot of artists. In fact, probably ninety five percent of them will only deal with that yeah. part of their work. Right. And they think of it very, very cleanly. I think everybody's my friend, which yeah. is probably wrong. <laughs> and I just think, don't you want to see this beautiful flower? And, oh, look at my paintings. Yeah. So, yeah. I, But I think if you can be extremely focused about it, it can be very effective. And if you, uh, yeah, that's great. And uh, Instagram seems to be the newer platform that's a little bit more interesting because it doesn't require so much baggage mm -hmm. and facebook whether you like it or not maybe does and i do both and uh it's been very effective it's mm -hmm. um and if i wanted to get really re i have a f uh my paintings page which i ignore but when i have a show coming up i will activate it and i'll start paying for ads and i'll they'll be putting it up on other you know five thousand people will get it who under the the preferences sheet that you fill will get that and it's i think it's well worth thirty dollars or whatever yeah. and you could do it extensively mm -hmm. i'm not sure how effective that part of it is i don't get a lot of contacts through that but it's more personal because most of my friends on facebook i would say 50 percent of them are artists right. and then there's people who have bought paintings in the past or who know my work and so mm -hmm. that's the other group yeah. so that's more focused and concentrated on me in my career my career, my my identity as a painter. Okay, so now back to, let's circle back to the older artists such as myself who, you know, the kids leave home and now I'm dabbling. What is it that we need to study? Obviously, at my age, I'm not going to college. <laughs> Go That's back. a very interesting question. You know, I take a workshop here, I take a drawing class there. What, what do, you, do you see a common um, thing? Um, needs showing up. Well, uh, was this would this be rude? What would you say to an older musician? Oh yeah, well I have them and I, I teach them and I love them. Some of them are very good. Yeah, but uh, oftentimes they're stuck because mm -hmm. and they don't learn as quickly. So here's a physical Definitely more hangups. Physical I make mental cry. problem. Right, you're dealing with older people who have been. <laughs> A, successful in some other thing. Yeah. They've gotten through life. They've raised a family. Don't, you know, F with me. <laughs> so that's the other problem. They are not 20 and they everything isn't new. So yeah. there's a resistance there both mentally, physically, Good and word. spiritually to being open to new information. And there's no more room in the brain. That's a physical thing. You have to get something out in order to put something in. It's like what we're talking about. Collecting, you have to move something off the wall to put a new thing on the yeah. wall. And I really do think that happens. I used to have a very cruel teacher. He's now long dead, but he'd say to me, people older than 40 can't learn. Because <laughs> we have these 
nice older people that would come into BU and they would be special students. They had quotes around their names. And they, I was like, he's not so bad. She goes, oh, forget it. They're not going to learn anything. They can't. And I, and I don't want to say that that's a place, but I, here's the thing. I feel like don't let it stop you. Mm. Don't have the same expectations you did when you were 20. Yeah. How much preparation did it take you to get to where you are in your what you did mm-hmm. in any event, whether it was teaching or just being at home? Mm-hmm. That took a lot. You took 14 years of English to learn how to write a sentence. Mm-hmm. It's going to take that much to learn how to do a pretty good painting. Mm-hmm. So if you're in for it, go right. for it. For the long haul. But it's a long haul. And I'm not... Uh, from, and that's my standard. There's people out there who start and they do great things and they're they're perfectly happy. But I feel like it's not going to be the same thing. So as long as you don't expect it to be the same, you won't be disappointed. Right. right. I mean, I would never. I mean, I'd love to start playing the piano again. I haven't played it since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But I would never think I could concertize and go. I'd never mm-hmm. learned Chopin with any sure. standard of excellence. It would just... Right. I. But I think I might learn Scott Joplin. You know, yeah. I might be able to do something. It'd be yeah. fun. I yeah. think I would have fun. I would enjoy it. It yeah. would be pleasurable Absolutely. to me. So is that okay? Right. And I think it is okay. It has to be okay. Now, I referred to my friend Arthur de Mambra, who was a painter, a pretty well-known painter around here, who was a surgeon. Yeah. Well, when he was in medical school in Philadelphia, a group of the surgeons and medical students would get together and they'd paint together. They started working on their hobby young Mm -hmm. and they were doing it all along his wife would make fun of him when we would try and draw a figure oh art can't draw he doesn't know perspective (laughs) it didn't stop him he just kept painting wonderful paintings and frankly the paintings have the flavor of uh, marsden hartley Mm -hmm. and folk art mixed up there's the the wrongness is right Is that, do you understand what I'm saying? There's a kind of beauty and charm to that. And that is, was done with a kind of conviction. That's great. It's the guy who wants to be Michelangelo at age 60. You just shake your head and say, you might as well go throw yourself over a cliff. Because that is just stupid. So I guess it's like what your ambitions are for the older artists and what you want. And... Um, mastery of a kind of technical skill isn't necessarily maybe what one can achieve readily as a younger person, but you can achieve a different kind of mastery Mm -hmm. and a different kind of beauty. And that's true and that's fine and things can happen that are really valuable and exciting to you, I think. Okay, so... I'm not being very satisfying. No, that was actually great. That was a great answer. I I liked that very much. And, you know, when you you made me think, because when I say I've made adult students cry, I don't make them cry. They They cry. They they cry themselves. They're very high-strung. And, yeah, we take things as adults very differently. And you're right. It comes from... (laughs) Yeah, it comes from that experience. I mean, look at... um, I mean, we'll direct you to it, but... Um, bravo and you watch all the housewives at these different places and they have so much riding on their own status and who they are and what they are and where they've been there's no like eh. like when you were a kid yeah. someone would say something nasty to you you'd forget about it right. within a day right now it's like you build a whole army oh. and you 
take them on. It's war on Main Street. I mean, top pocket. Yeah, don't ever lose that anger and that resentment. It's so I feel like that's the thing that stands in the way of older people learning and being masterful. That's a good point. Yeah, not wanting to take that. Instruction or empty themselves and then open them. It's like it's just the way it is, and um, I'm the same way. I don't know if I could learn anything new. Boy, it's hard. I tried to take German. Forget it. First of all, I couldn't remember a damn thing. I couldn't even remember how to get to four. I can eins, drei, zwei. I mean, I didn't. It's pretty bad. (laughs) Although Italian, I'm pretty good at. So that I learned young. Right. See. (laughs) There's definitely different connections. All right, do you have one funny painting or teaching story? Anything that comes to mind? Funny painting or teaching story. <laughs> uh, you know, when I'm asked to be funny, I don't think I am, so I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. But um, uh, I did a huge painting for my show in New York in 1984. And uh, it was on the, it was in the conversation for being on the card, and the the dealer was doing a kind of polarized printing technique. It wasn't going to be a literal photograph with a card of the painting. It was going to be a kind of rendition photographically of the painting. And so she told me about this, and we were standing in my studio, and there was a painting of a figure of a man with a sickle, and he was naked. And under that arm where he was reaching out was a figure of a woman and a baby. And the man's genitals were sort of there. And I said, so what, you know, in this room full of large, naked people, what part of the paintings are you thinking of zeroing in on? And she walked over and she put a little square around the man's parts and said, that's what we'll... (laughs) So that's my one funny story, <laughs> which she didn't do, of course, yes. but it was a joke. So. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, anyway, gosh. recently I don't have any good ones, but yeah. oh, um, that's a good one. So, well, thanks. This has been really great. Yeah, I can gas on forever. I, I mean, you could turn me on and I just yeah. wait till the battery runs out. <laughs> Recharge. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. If you found inspiration from today's show, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and share it with a friend or two on social media. Also, take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes or share your takeaways from today's show on artistsofnewengland.com under today's episode. And while you're there, you'll find links to the topics mentioned in today's show. And don't forget to peruse the growing library of podcasts and resources. Thanks for listening. you got beauty to share with the world that no other human has. So get in the ring and pick up that brush.